Well, it's been a busy week this week. Uh, there's many of us, Randy and Margo and Judy and Re- Pastor Reese and I, all made our way to Edmonton at various points, and so it's really cold there, so it's bright, but uh, it's much warmer here. And while I was gone, a scam email was sent out to uh, the church, and so if you got an email from apparently from me asking you to pick up gift cards so that I could surprise the staff. That is a scam. I surprise the staff in other ways. Um, <laughs> but just so you know, if you're looking for an email from me, my, I'm dave at calvarybaptist.ca. Uh, i got to say, my favorite response was Allison, who told the scammers that she would be praying for them. And I appreciate that very much. Um, Also, just want you to know that today is the last day to be getting nominations in to the elders, and so you can either put a hard copy into the office today, or you can send an email in with your nominations for elders. Again, it's a really important role. Uh, The elders help us to shepherd the church, and uh, we want you to hopefully have prayerfully considered who would be uh, good candidates for that role, and we continue to look forward to seeing who God raises up in our midst to serve in that position. Well, we have been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount called Living in God's Countercultural Kingdom. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 8 this morning. And so as you're opening them up, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you for how when we come to worship you, you you bless us in the midst of being together. It's our intention to bless you, and yet you show up and you bless us with encouraging prayers and songs to sing, uh, gracious welcomes from brothers and sisters, and we get the great gift of your Holy Spirit who leads us in your divinely gifted word. And so we just pray that you would open up our hearts and our ears and our minds to what you want to say to us this morning. If there's anything that I say that's not of you or distraction, just remove it. But just pray that what is from you, Lord, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. And that in all these things we trust you because you are good and we love you and we thank you that you loved us first. Amen. Matthew 5, verses 6 to 8 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah. God's good gift to us. You know, I remember many years ago, uh, it was probably eight years ago now, it was my final checkup at my oncologist. And so it was a great day where she gave me this clean bill of health. So it was really exciting. But before I left, she looked me in the eyes and she said really straightforwardly, Dave, you need to take care of yourself. And even, you know, those were her doctor's orders. And though she didn't give me any explicit instructions, I knew exactly what she meant. It meant that I needed to, like, watch my diet and I needed to, like, 
be careful to maintain some, some good physical exercise. And, you know, this meant that I needed to change my lifestyle. And this had a huge impact on me. I gained new hobbies. I also had to eat different foods, which this resulted in having more energy and having to buy new clothes. Like, all these different changes were happening to me. But those changes didn't just impact me. They also impacted my family, right? When I would get up early in the morning to exercise, no matter how quiet I could try to be, I would always wake Andrea up, right? We could no longer park the car in the garage because now it was full of exercise equipment. My children, maybe they begrudged the fact that with my change of diet also came their change of diet. And so, yeah, these things impacted them as well. My doctor's order changed my world, but it also impacted my world, the world around me, even though I didn't intend it to. And we see these same sorts of additional impacts throughout our lives, right? A change made in one person's life always has an effect on others, whether we like it or not. A stay-at-home parent, they decide they want to go back to school or go to work, and the whole family is impacted by that, right? A teenager gets their driver's license, and not only is their world turned upside down, but so are those around them, right? And usually, the larger the change or the transformation in our lives, the more significant that impact will be felt by others within the vicinity, right? It's like that ripple effect. You throw a small pebble in a pond, and you get small ripples, and they only go out so far. But you throw a large stone in a pond, and the waves can be massive and spread even further. And you see, this is what Jesus' Beatitudes, his Sermon on the Mount, are like. Right? Jesus came proclaiming that the kingdom of God had arrived in him and he invited other people to follow him in it, to live like they were citizens already of that coming kingdom of God's. And the personal change that his followers would undergo, it wouldn't just impact them, but it would impact others. More than just sending out ripples, the impact that the kingdom of God had on these followers of Jesus well, it would send out shockwaves that would change their world. And what Jesus tells us in these verses that we just read is that our kingdom transformation, it leads to this world's restoration. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Talk about countercultural. Our society tells us if we obtain certain things, well, then we will have made it, right? We will be satisfied and be living the good life if we get certain things. But righteousness, it's not on the list of these things, right? We're told if you have the right wardrobe, smartphone, house, and car, well, then you will be satisfied. Get the dream job, the right relationship, or the financial freedom, and you will be filled, now, none of these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. And, you know, but we will be deceived and have bought into a lie if we believe that any of these things can bring us the peace and contentment that we ultimately long for. It's not that I think that our society is out to get us. I think a lot of the companies and marketers out there are honestly trying to make our lives better. And many of these things do. 
but they cannot satisfy that vacancy in our lives created by our broken relationship with God. The Bible tells us how that all came about in that infamous story back in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. In that account, there was a snake who tempted the first humans to rebel against God, their creator, convincing them that God was holding out on them. And so they took matters into their own hands rather than living according to his instructions for their lives. And the result was a broken relationship with God, but it also shattered other relationships. The relationships that we have with one another, with ourselves, and with the creation. And the Bible goes on to identify that snake as the evil power that opposes God and humanity called Satan or the deceiver. And he wants us to believe that other things will fulfill us, that there are other desires that if we obtain them, that those will satisfy us. And that power of sin or that brokenness in our lives that is the result of our fractured relationship with God, that has only served to increase our appetites, and so we look for satisfaction in things like food and drink and comfort and pleasure and wealth, while at the same time, sin has diminished our desire and longings for righteousness. But when Jesus enters our lives, he begins to heal us by restoring that hunger and craving for righteousness, while at the same time, he also delivers us from these other unhealthy appetites that have been twisted by sin, which we can make into idols. They can have become addictions. So what is this righteousness that Jesus is saying that his followers should crave? It's all about relationships. Righteousness is about being in right relationships. If you were here with us during our series on reconciliation, then you will know that it's not only about a right relationship between humanity and God, but biblical righteousness also includes our relationship with others, with ourselves, and with creation. So with our environment and the animals. And often, we can minimize righteousness, or we can misunderstand it to be all about rule following, right? And certainly there are rules in the Bible that we are meant to follow. But what we fail to understand is that rules aren't simply some list of do's and don'ts, but rather the picture the Bible gives us, it is, it's just that. It's a picture of what a right relationship with God looks like. In every relationship, it has protocols, things that we do, things that we avoid doing in order to maintain healthy relationships, right? Like, after work, I go home to my wife and to my kids, not because it's the law, right? But I go home rather than out to the pub or out with my buddies because I want to maintain good relationships with them, to have a strong and healthy marriage. And this is what we see that many of the religious leaders back in Jesus' day, they got it so wrong. They thought you know, that they were righteous because they were able to comply with the law, right? They tithed a tenth of everything down to the last herb in the garden. But the real righteousness that they weren't able to have, it goes beyond compliance with rules, beyond legality. It's about being faithful to, re to relationships. Just because something is legal or just because it's culturally acceptable does not mean it's righteous. 
Uh, I remember this came home to me one time in a conversation with my brother-in-law. Uh, he's Japanese descendant, and his grandparents were taken into the Japanese internment camps during the Second World War, and they had property, I think it was out in Maple Ridge somewhere. And when they were taken into the internment camps, um, their property was put up for sale. And many of the people who came into that area and bought up this property on the cheap were Dutch Christians and Mennonite Christians who came in and bought it up on the cheap. And those are some of my people. And I remember listening to him talk about that and just wondering, like, it was legal. But was it righteous? Wouldn't the righteous thing have been to, to buy it up and to hold it as safeguard it for them so that when their neighbors were finally free from being unjustly imprisoned so that they could have it back? Perhaps that's too costly. Like I said before, righteousness is more than just about me and my relationship with God. It's also about our relationship with others. And so this means that righteousness includes things like social justice and moral righteousness. I think when Jesus promises those who thirst and hunger for righteousness will be filled, I think that this is going to be a promise that will be uh, in the future, that we won't be filled right now in the present. Because we know that this won't come to complete fruition until Jesus returns, because we know until that time, not everything is going to be made completely right so our desires, they won't be completely satisfied until Jesus comes back. But in the meantime, this desire for righteousness that Jesus awakens in all of his followers, it won't be satisfied if we ignore it, nor if we try to fill it with other things. But we can be filled right now as we come into this right relationship with Christ and as we do the difficult work of reconciling relationships those ones that have gone wrong with other people. See, those who are born again, they will actively pursue reconciled relationships. And so our transformation, it will lead to this world's restoration. He goes on to say, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So mercy is when we forgive someone when they've done something wrong, or when we show kindness to someone even though they don't deserve it. And I have to say, this beatitude stops me in my tracks. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Is Jesus saying that only those who show mercy will receive mercy? What does that mean then about the grudges that I hold? about the bitterness and resentment that I harbor against those who have done me wrong. And then to make matters worse, Matthew records Jesus saying in chapter 6, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Yikes. Surely Jesus cannot be saying that we earn forgiveness by forgiving others. No. We know that the gospel clearly states that forgiveness of our sins comes through faith and repentance. I'll say it again. Forgiveness of our sins comes through trusting in Jesus, faith in him, and repentance. So turning from our ways and trusting and following him. But I think what Jesus is saying 
is that when we forgive other people, when we extend mercy, it is a sign that we actually have repented, that we have turned from our ways, the ways that want to harbor grudges, and we are instead following Jesus and his way of mercy. To say it another way, you and I cannot claim to have repented and to be following Jesus, who is all about mercy, if we are unmerciful towards others. Let's just consider a moment the impact that mercy could have on our homes. How could mercy have an impact on your home or your neighborhood? Or what about our church community, Calvary Baptist Church? How could showing mercy impact us? If we did away with grudges and resentment, if we extended forgiveness and kindness freely, all because we recognize that we have received great mercy from God through Christ and that this is the way that Jesus desires for each one of us to live. I've got two stories about the impact not showing mercy shows and one that shows the kind of impact mercy can have. The first was I was an elder Uh, sorry, I wasn't an elder, at a previous church where I went to an elders meeting, we were discussing possible nominations for elders. And um, we were all discussing a certain young man in the church who had the kind of qualities we look for in an elder. He had a great character, servant attitude, and we were all excited that potentially to have this young man serve on our board. However, another older gentleman on the board, he vehemently refused to even allow us to consider having this younger man up for a board position. This was because this younger man's wife had said something unkind to his wife seven years earlier. And this older elder, he refused to forgive or even to talk to this younger man about it. And then when I offered to, like, help him to say, oh, I'm sure that we can resolve this. I'll come with you. I'm sure it's a misunderstanding or that they're not even thinking about it. Let's go together. This elder refused to my offer to help them reconcile. And that unwillingness to show mercy from that older elder, it prevented a good man from serving the church that he loved. But it also created mistrust on that board. On the other hand, my friend Keith once told me a story about how he had these neighbors who had this very large and loud dog that they did not like to take for walks. And so this dog would bark all day long because it just wanted to go out. When they would finally just let it out rather than taking it for a walk, it would go over onto Keith's yard, tear it up, do its business there, and just destroy his yard. And you can, you know, you can sense that that could cause some bitterness and some resentment But Keith felt the Lord was calling him actually to pray for this situation and to show mercy. So rather than begrudge his neighbors, he extended kindness and he offered to walk Fido every day. And this not only resulted in the transformation of his yard, (laughs) but more importantly, it transformed his relationships with his neighbors began a friendship where there was once animosity. His obedience demonstrates for us the kind of impact 
that God's counterall kingdom should have. It not only transforms us, but it impacts the world around us. And when we show mercy that the world doesn't expect, it often is met with marvelous results. Our transformation leads to this world's restoration. Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Think about that promise for a moment. They shall see God. That's the best promise in all of Scripture. Isn't there? That's the thing I want the most. I want to see God. I want to be in His presence. So, who are these pure in heart who receive this incredible honor? Because I want to be one of them. So, the word pure means unpolluted or uncontaminated. There's nothing bad in the mix. Now, the heart. You know, for us, it's, we think about our place of emotions, but in the Jewish mindset, the heart was like the center of a person. It's where their emotions resided, but also the mind and the human will. And so the pure in heart, these aren't just sinless folk. Rather, they are authentic. They are sincere. They know that they cannot hide anything from God, and so they bring all of it to them, all, of the, all they are to God, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think one of the prime examples of the pure in heart in the Bible is King David. He sinned big time. He not only forced a woman to have an affair with him, but when she became pregnant, he had her, wife, her husband killed in order to cover it up. But you see, David is still considered pure in heart because he repented over this. He brought before God both his victories, but also his huge failures. Not only before God, but he brought it before Israel. And now it's recorded in all of Scripture for everyone to read for all of history. And he writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Lord, blot out my transgressions. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. And so, you you know, I think about that tax collector Jesus talked about in Luke 18. He comes into the temple. He can't even look up to heaven. Instead, he beats his chest and he says, have mercy on me, O God, for I am a sinner. You and I, we can be pure in heart too when we live transparent before God, but also as we live vulnerable before others. By refusing to pretend we're something we're not and being authentic in our struggles and weakness, this is when we are being pure in heart. And I think the prayer of those who are pure in heart is Psalm 138 or 139. It says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. You see, when we live our lives authentically like this, other people are going to see that we are far from perfect. But then they should also see that we are working on righting those broken relationships in our lives. They'll also see that we're extending mercy to people who don't warrant it, right? They'll see that despite our failures and disappointments that you and I have hope 
hope that doesn't disappoint, hope that one day we're going to see God face to face. And this is the promise that this beatitude holds out for us. And this is the promise that we cling to. And it's people that have lived with this kind of authenticity that have impacted my life the most. It was people that shared their vulnerable selves with me that drew me to Christ when I was a young person, right? They weren't perfect, but I could tell that they were being real with me. And by allowing me to see God at work in their lives in both the successes, but also, and maybe especially in the failures, they allowed me to experience God's healing. They allowed me to see him face to face. And that's also what I hope will happen with my life. See, I hope that by following Christ, not only do I want to be transformed, but I also desire that he will use my life to impact those around me in the same way, in some way, shape, or form. Christ proclaimed to us that his kingdom, in him, the kingdom of heaven, had come to earth. And so if Christ is living within us, doesn't that mean that his kingdom will impact the world around us? that our transformation, it will lead to this world's restoration. I don't want any of us to feel overwhelmed by the task of having to restore the world. That's not the responsibility I believe that this sermon is calling us to. We have to remember the context for all of this, right? The Beatitudes are a description of a follower of Christ whose life is being transformed by him, by the kingdom, They describe the character of a disciple who is living in the presence and the power of the kingdom of God. So it's not about producing this character in and of ourselves. This is not a call for us to go out there and be world changers all on our own. Paul says in Galatians 5 that it's when we keep in step with God's spirit that we are able to then live in obedience to Christ. That it's when the spirit of God enables us to overcome temptation. That's how we overcome. And that it is by the Spirit of Christ that these characteristics of the kingdom are grown in each of us. So our world is restored and the people around us are impacted as you and I become transformed by God's kingdom and as we keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Jesus uses a couple of analogies, or Jesus uses an analogy for this. He uses the one of the vine and the branches in John 15. It's one of my favorites. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear good fruit. What a promise. But if you don't remain in me, you can do nothing. Paul uses a different analogy in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. (laughs) Think about that. The aroma of God is spread by us. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we're the aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. We're the same aroma no matter what. It's just, it's perceived by people differently. But either way, it smells of Jesus. Both of these analogies demonstrate that it's through a close, intimate relationship with Jesus that results not only in a change within ourselves, but also it will impact the world around us. Jesus says that if we stay close to him, good things will result. 
Paul says the closer we are to Christ, the more we smell like him, the more Jesus rubs off on us, and people will identify us with him. Our transformation, it leads to this world's restoration as we continue to trust and obey Christ, turning from our own ways and following his. But this means more than just finding quiet times to read our Bibles and pray, though it should include that. I think the kind of transformation Jesus makes in the life of, the fo- of a follower of his, it's not some small inconsequential change like tossing a pebble into a small pond with tiny ripples, I think the kind of change and transformation that God's kingdom makes in a believer, it's more like an offshore earthquake sending tsunami warnings far and wide. Its impact is felt. Believing it means we're living it. It means stepping out in faith. It means taking risks and following Christ. And in this passage, I think Jesus tells us just how we can do this. First, it means doing the difficult work of writing relationships that have gone wrong, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that we're doing our best to reconcile with others. Second, it means that we're willing to show mercy, that we're willing to forgive the coworker who gossiped behind our back, that we're willing to go out of our way and befriend that lonely person in our school or maybe in our church foyer. Following Jesus means that despite my own failures and my own shortcomings, that I'm willing to be vulnerable, to live authentically, not pretend that I'm someone I'm not so that others can see the grace of God working in my life and the hope that I have in him. It also allows others to extend the grace of God. I remember a few weeks back, my friend Sarah She's like, Dave, how can we help you and your family out? I'm like, no, we're good. We're all fine. And she's like, Dave, you need to let the church help you out. And then a meal was delivered. And I was like, oh, God, I didn't even know how much I needed this. But it's hard to be vulnerable. But it not only extends the grace of God towards others, it extends it towards ourselves, too. So here are some questions I think can help us to live out the kingdom life that Jesus is calling us to in this passage. The first one is, what broken relationships do we need to write? Who are the people we're avoiding? Maybe we're running from. What can we do as far as it depends on us, Paul says, to live in right relationships with others? Who needs you to show mercy to them? Maybe it's the same person that you thought of from the first question. And finally, how can we live more authentically? Maybe these are some questions that we can talk about on the way home or over lunch today. But we don't do this alone, right? We have one another. We also have God's spirit within us who will not only prompt us, but who will empower us to do these things. And we've also followed Jesus, who said, surely I am with you always. And so this is good news. Would you stand with me as we pray and invite the worship team to come on up?
Jesus, your words are so radical. They challenge me so deeply. Even though I've read them so many times, as I read them, read them again this week, I see how you're, you're challenging me to be more like you. And that is the desire of my heart. But it's a bit of a scary proposition, Lord. But I thank you I don't have to do it on my own, that none of us does. That you are the one who is reshaping us, reforming us, remaking us into your image. Thank you that we get to do this in community with brothers and sisters. That right here we can show mercy to one another and care for each other. And I just pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would cling to the hope that you who started a good work in us, you will carry it on to completion. And as for all the good things that you've done for us and for these promises, the hope that we cling to, that we worship and praise you. You are our great God and we love you. Amen.